Well, as we come to Habakkuk today, we're going to talk a lot about questioning God. Uh, and, and it raises the question, just as we begin, has there been a time in your life when you have had serious questions for God? Maybe you find yourself there this morning. Uh, I think everybody finds themselves there at one point or another. And, and we're talking about, about serious questions. Serious questions like, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you silent? When will you act? How long are you going to sit idly by and do nothing? Where is justice? Because it seems perverted. All these questions are about to get raised by Habakkuk. And my assumption is you resonate with some of those. As we start, I just want to ask, like, which ones? Where, when I read that list of questions, or maybe some other questions pop to mind, where are you at right now with God? And I just want to encourage you that you're not necessarily doing anybody any favors by, by taking those questions and stuffing them in a deep, dark place where they'll never see the light of day. And the longer you've been around church and the more religious you are, the more you might have a tendency to do something like that. I just want to encourage you that the questions mean something. It, it's right to question God because it becomes an opportunity to, to know Him more closely as you stick with that question and try to, try to work through it. And we're going to talk a lot about that here this morning. And I, and I want to confess as well, I have asked all those questions. Even just in my little rundown and my introduction of my story, you can probably guess where some of the questions came up. But I, I've been in uh, vocational ministry for 21 years now. This is the fourth church that I've worked at. Two of the churches are dead. So a 50% success rate. Uh, or failure rate. Either way, uh, I've been married for 22 years, and I have three daughters, all of whom will be in high school together next year. So, plenty of opportunities for questions, right? <laughs> and, and I have asked all those questions, and I'm sure there are many more questions awaiting me. And, and, and so I want you to, to consider, is it, is it right or wrong to ask questions of God? Is it sinful even? Some would say yes. Some would say that, that, that it's wrong and that you just need to have faith all the time. I'm not sure. We'll consider that. Uh, and, and, and with that as well, what are we supposed to do with our questions? So with all that, I want to turn to Habakkuk. And we're going to see pretty quickly, this is, this is basically the structure of this little book. It's three chapters long. And it's really a, a, a question and a response back and forth between Habakkuk and God. He lays out his comp question, and it's really almost more like a complaint. The subject heading, if, you, if you're reading along in the English Standard Version, the ESV, will say Habakkuk's first complaint and Habakkuk's second complaint. And he basically lodges his complaint and his question, and then God responds. Uh, and, and it goes back and forth two times this way, and then it kind of concludes. And setting the scene, here, here's where things are at. God's people, the nation of Israel, finds themselves surrounded on all sides by the growing power in the region coming from Babylon. And if you remember, uh, Babylon has shown up multiple times in these minor prophets. Assyria has. We talked about Assyria last week and how brutal they were. Well, and, and then we talked about how the judgment was coming for Assyria. Well, judgment came on Assyria from Babylon. So as bad as Assyria was... Babylon was bigger and badder and just crushed Assyria, and now they're bent on kind of crushing and plundering everyone else in the area. And, and so, so Habakkuk, uh, at the beginning of the book, at the beginning of chapter 1, he, he cries out to God and he says, look, the wicked are surrounding the righteous, 
And it seems like there's no justice. He doesn't just ask a question. He says, justice goes forth perverted, is what he says. So it's not just a question. He's saying, God, where are you? What are you doing? Because justice isn't just absent. It seems perverse. Serious question. And God responds. He responds, and he says, you know, I'm going to do a work in your day that you will not believe. But it's not what he was hoping for. He says, he says as bad as Babylon is, they, you're right, they're bad, and they're coming for you. And guess who's behind it? Me. God says, his answer to, to Habakkuk's complaint is like, oh, you have no idea. I'm behind Babylon. I am raising them up, and they're going to come as a judge for you and your people. They're coming to crush you. As you might guess, this is going to raise further questions. And that's where we pick up the dialogue. Chapter 1, verse 12, he begins and he says, he acknowledges God's character. He says, look, I know you're everlasting. I know you're holy. And I hear what you said, that you have ordained them as judgment. That you've established them for reproof. That you're sending them. Okay, I hear what you're saying. But it raises a question. He says in verse 13, God, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil. You, you can't even look at wrong, he says. If that's true about you and you can't even look at wrong, how can you sit idly and look at these traitors, these wicked people, and remain silent when they're coming for us? When the wicked are literally bent on swallowing up, consuming, destroying a man more righteous than he. Now, he's not just being self-righteous here, although that might be a part of the equation. There might be some self-righteousness going on in, in Habakkuk's heart, but, but, but he's right in the sense that, that Babylon, is, these, are, these are rough people. They, they don't really create anything or do much of anything on their own. They just plunder and take whatever they want. And they enslave everybody else to build whatever they want. These are, this, is, this is, in the same way as Cam said last week, Assyria was a scourge on this area. Babylon is the new scourge. And they're bigger, and they're worse, and they're more powerful. And they crushed Assyria. So he's saying, how can you, how can you use these people? I hear what you're saying, but how can that be? And he, and he continues in verse 14. He said, he said, it seems like you're making us just like animals, like fish, like crawling things that have no ruler, which I think is kind of a jab at God, saying like, like, what, are we just animals with no boss? You're, you're absent. You're absent from the process, just letting this happen. We're left like fish to fend for ourselves. And it says in verse 15, while, while he, the wicked person that he's talking about, ultimately Babylon, while he just brings up all the fish with the hook, he drags them out with his net, he gathers them and rejoices and he's glad. He's saying, God, is, is this all there is? Are we just like fish that, that, that whoever's strongest can just gather us up and do whatever they want with us? Therefore, it says in verse 16, he sacrifices to his net. He makes offerings to his dragnet because by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. He's saying these guys exist by simply their military power and, and they worship their power and they worship their weapons and they worship everything that, that gets what they want. They're self-sufficient. They're arrogant. They're prideful. He says in verse 17, is he then to keep emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Habakkuk cries out. He says, is all this just going to keep going on? Is this the cycle? Is this how the world is supposed to be? 
How can a, a holy, pure God see all this and keep silent? How can you see all this and do nothing? How can you say that you're behind it? How long will the wicked continue to, to triumph over everyone else? Are we really no better than fish? Is the weaker completely at the mercy of the stronger? And this is how you want it to be? And he concludes in chapter 2, verse 1. So he says, here's my complaint. And I'm going to wait for you to answer. I'm going to stand like a watchman on a tower waiting for news. And I'm going to wait and see what you have to tell me in response to my complaint and my question. There's some serious questions, right? Serious questions. I want, to, I want to start and just pause here and I want to come back to, to one of the questions I asked at, at the beginning, which is, is it right? Is Habakkuk right or wrong for asking these questions? Are you silent? Why won't you save me? Justice is perverted. Why are you sitting by idly? Is, is it okay to even say things like this to God? And like I said earlier, if you've been around the church for a while, you probably know somebody or at least some perspective that that wants to kind of doubt that and won't be like, hey, easy there, I'm not sure. I just want to answer you emphatically that it is not wrong. It's not wrong to question God like this. And the Bible is full of questions like this. Just, just consider for a moment if you know anything about the book of Psalms. The, the, the word Psalms means praises. And, and the Hebrew title for the book means book of praises. And so that means that all 150 of these psalms are, are praises to God written from different circumstances, different places in life, different things that people are going through, different emotions that they're feeling. And they're all meant to be praises to God. But if you study the book of Psalms, you'll find that the predominant genre, what, the, what, what more songs, psalms are like than any other kind of psalms, is what most uh, scholars and academics call laments. They sound a lot like what Habakkuk's saying. They say things like, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will I only have tears for my food? Why are you silent? They cry out in these why and how long questions over and over and over again. And so if they're all meant as praises to God, and there's more of those kind than any other, I think we can draw a, a clear lesson from that. And that is that that Scripture assumes that a great deal of our lives will be lived from the same place in lament and distress and trouble in the midst of questions. And so, before we continue, I just want to encourage you, don't let anybody tell you you're wrong for having questions about God at times. Difficulty is expected and promised by Scripture. There's no promise that everything's going to be perfect until the very end, when Jesus returns. Then it's going to be great. That's when things are going to finally click. But until then, it's going to be a mixed bag. All the blessings are going to be mixed in with, with hard things at the same time. And it's not wrong to ask why. In fact, if you, you just think, of, think about it, if you're in a relationship with someone, and that person does something that, that hurts you, what is the way of relationship with that person? Is it to stuff that hurt and never bring it up again in the name of love? Or do you go and talk to them? It's the, the latter, right? You've got to go talk to them and say, you, 
you hurt me. I don't know what you're doing here. Why did you say that? What's going on? We need to work this out. Questions are, are, are a way that we actually draw closer in relationship to God. Not, not create more distance. The last five years of my life have been full of, of all kinds of questions. And, and for me, they're not as much uh, about this first and foremost question in, in Habakkuk's mind uh, about justice. I haven't had a lot of uh, foreign nations at my door ready to invade my territory. But, but I've definitely wondered where God is and what He's up to. Especially as, as Mars Hill was ending, I, I, was, I was stuck for a while on just this question of like, God, how... How can you seem to have worked in such a powerful way through something and then just let it die? And, and for me personally, I, I was involved in it for a long time. I gave half my 20s and all my 30s. I, I came to Mars Hill when I was 24 and I turned 40 just a little after it died. And it raised serious questions like, what was I doing? What was that all for? Did, what, was there anything good about it? Does, does the mess at the end undo all the other things that happened earlier, right? Serious questions. I've also definitely felt like God is, is silent at times. The last year of Redeemer Church, there was just a ton of, of mess and conflict and dysfunction going on behind the scenes, and I was in probably the darkest place of my life. Wondering where God is and what He's up to. It was a, a time of depression and despair and hopelessness and isolation. It was a terrible place. And I asked God all kinds of questions in the middle of all that. I want you to know I've been there and I know you have been there. And I want to encourage you to not, not stuff it down and just try to ignore that you have those questions and you have those feelings. Instead, you've got to press into them. You've got to take them to God. There's a reason why David, King David, was called a, a man after God's own heart. He writes uh, more of the Psalms than any, any other, and he writes a ton of these gut-wrenching ones, like, God, where are you? Because he, he's a man after God's own heart, in part because he, he constantly pressed into God. He didn't just let these things go, and I want to encourage you in the same way, even here this morning. So it's not wrong to ask why, but it raises the question, what are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do with our questions? And these feelings. And I think God has some insight for us here in, in, in what follows. Chapter 2, verse 2, it shifts and, and uh, he, he answers Habakkuk. He, at least he, he starts uh, to answer. And he says, he says this. He says, he begins in, in verse 2, uh, write it down, make it plain on tablets. He says, says look, I'm going to answer you. Write this down so that everyone can hear. This is for you, it's, it's going to be for plenty of others too. Ultimately, he's, he's wanting to preserve it in a way that is handed down even to us here today. Verse 3 says, says uh, the vision still awaits its appointed time. It, it hastens to it, its end, but it will not lie. He's, saying, he's saying, saying, look, it's going to take a while for all this to come true, but I promise it will come true. And then here's his answer. It's in two parts in verse 4. First, he says, behold, his... The wicked man, Babylon in this case, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. He says, he says, look, I know you're concerned with this. I know this is raising questions. How could I use Babylon for my purposes? And he says, make no mistake. Just because I'm using them 
Doesn't mean I'm endorsing them. Doesn't mean I'm, I'm vouching for them. I know that they are not a righteous people. And what he's going to go on to say in the rest of chapter 2 is he's going to go into great detail about the, the judgment that will eventually come for Babylon. He says, I'm going to use them for my purposes in this time, but they will ultimately receive justice at my hand. And they do eventually. That's the first part of his answer. And the second part is going to probably sound familiar to you because it's, it's, it's quoted multiple other times in Scripture. He says, Babylon will get theirs, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And, and righteous is a word we don't use as much today, but, but what's meant by that is, is being right with God. Being in right standing, right relationship with God. And he says, so he's saying in, in contrast to the arrogant who trust in themselves and their own power, in contrast to them, those who are in right relationship with me will do so not, not through faith in themselves and their own might, but through faith in Me. Through trust in Me. They will trust that I am who I say I am. They will trust that I will do what I say that I will do. And the Hebrew word in particular here also has a connotation of not just faith, but also faithfulness. There's a sense in which he's saying it kind of has both of these words, and it's a play on that. He's saying, those that are in right relationship with me will trust me and they will also follow me. They will also be faithful. They will also follow everything I've called them to while they wait for my promises to come. So let's pause here for a minute and just ask, what is meant by this? What does it mean? What does it mean to live by faith. And to answer what it means to live by faith, on some level, you need to define what, what faith is. And, and if we kind of jump forward a little bit in Scripture to the book of Hebrews, I think there's the best definition of what faith is from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It says this, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. In, in a different translation, in the NIV instead of the, the ESV, I, I like how it says it says it even simpler. It says, faith is being sure of what you hope for and confident of what you do not see. So the key to faith is believing, is trusting in something that you can't see, that you can't feel. If you could see it, if you could feel it, if it was right there, you wouldn't need faith, Right? And that means that for God's people, there will come a time, if we believe the Scriptures, that, that Jesus will ultimately return and we will see Him. At that time, faith will actually pass away. There won't need to be faith anymore. Because when you can see, when there's sight, you don't need faith. Like the old hymn, uh, Is Well With My Soul, has a, has a great line It says, And Lord, haste the day when the faith will be sight. Paul promises in in 1 Corinthians 13, that someday we'll, we'll know fully even as we're fully known. We'll see fully. In that day, faith will pass away. That's part of why he says love is greater than faith because love will go on forever. Faith is, is temporary. So faith is trust and confidence and assurance of something that is unseen. Habakkuk has some serious questions and God doesn't condemn him for any of these questions. Instead, he says in answer to what, do we, what does he do about it then? He calls them deeper into relationship with Him. Calls them to faith in the midst of those questions. 
He calls Habakkuk to believe that he is working behind the scenes even if he can't see him. He calls Habakkuk to believe that Babylon will ultimately receive justice even though it's not going to be in Habakkuk's lifetime. He calls Habakkuk to believe by faith that he is working for the ultimate good of all God's people, even though it's going to get really rough in the near term. And all of this, as God responds, has a dramatic effect on Habakkuk. And he goes through a a transformation. To me, all of Habakkuk reads like one long psalm. And in the psalms, a lot of times, what you see is is they'll start off with these kind of complaints and these concerns, and then God shows up somehow and then it ends with like a, 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 a change of heart. Where they're like, you know, I, I don't know where you are, but then you revealed yourself to me and I will trust in you. And that's kind of how Habakkuk ends. It, it, it culminates in, in chapter 3, which actually is a psalm. Uh, the, the final inscription at the end of, of chapter 3 says it's for the, 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 leader of, the, the worship leader basically with stringed instruments. And so he composes this song in response where he recounts all of God's faithfulness throughout time to His people, especially images from, from the Exodus when God showed up to deliver them from slavery in Egypt. And it culminates in the last three verses, verses 17, 18, and 19, in one of the most beautiful poetic passages in all the Old Testament. He says, Therefore, in response to everything that God's revealed to him, though the fig trees should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the, ye- and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Now, obviously these are agricultural and, and livestock images, and that's not as big a deal for us today. At least most of us probably, unless there's some farmers among us. But, but, but the heart of what these things mean is is security, right? This is this is food on the table and money in the bank. This is everything that makes them feel safe and provided for. And Habakkuk says, even if I lose all those things, even if our finances and food and all of our sense of security is thrown into chaos, yet verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He says, I won't just trust, I will rejoice. I will rejoice in God because He has become my my salvation. He's what saves me. He's what strengthens me. Even with this ominous news. Even with this this news of of impending doom and judgment. And he concludes with this, this, this image, he says, He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. It means he, he makes me as sure-footed as a deer on a steep high mountain. And if you haven't seen that, the idea is they don't slip. That's the idea. This is what it means to live by faith. Trusting in the goodness and grace of God even when you don't see them. Trusting in God's goodness and grace regardless of your circumstances, even when the circumstances seem to mean exactly the opposite. And all of this points us to Jesus. Because He's both the example of faith as well as as the object of our faith. This, This series, we're calling it Finding Jesus in the Minor Prophets because we believe firmly that even in these obscure little books at the end of the Old Testament, that all of them are, are pointing to and speaking about Jesus. And 
who He is and, and who he, what He would do for us. And so when we think about Jesus in terms of, of faith, there's something really profound as I was meditating and thinking about this this week. Think about the nature of Jesus. He's the eternal Son of God. Eternally existing in perfect unity with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And, and as such, the eternal Son of God has no need whatsoever for faith. Because He saw everything. He was everywhere. He was all-powerful. He saw everything. And, and so there was no need for faith because He had full sight. And yet, He chose to join His divinity to humanity. In what I believe theologically is probably for the rest of all time. It seems like every time Jesus shows up after the incarnation, after He's born as a human baby, He always shows up with a body. And in that, He takes on all the limitations of humanity, and in some ways seems to continue in that limited way for all eternity. Think about that. All of us only have the option of faith because we see such a small part. Jesus is the only one who volunteered for the way of faith. He had no need of faith. And yet He chose to limit Himself Paul says in, in, in Philippians, it says he, he emptied himself, taking on even the very nature of a servant. He entered creation as a human being, volunteering for faith, and, and where all of us fail to trust God in big ways and small ways, and everywhere in between, Jesus trusted perfectly in the will of His Father. In God the Father's Word to Him, in His directions to Him. And I believe never more so than on the last night of His earthly life. The Gospel of Mark uh, tells the story that, that He uh, took some time with His closest friends, that He uh, had a, a final meal together, and then afterwards, He went out to a nearby garden to pray. The Garden of Gethsemane. And Mark describes at this point that He was greatly distressed and troubled. He was rocked to his core at this point. And why? It's because he knew what was coming. Because like Habakkuk, God had revealed to him some serious things were about to happen. Later that night, he would be betrayed. He would be abandoned by his closest friends and followers. He would endure a sham trial under false pretenses by Jewish leaders who should have recognized Him and worshipped Him as the Messiah, but instead saw Him as a threat to their power and wanted Him dead. He would endure false accusations and be sentenced to death in a horrible way. One of the most horrible ways for someone to die ever made up by humans. Through crucifixion. And beyond the physical torment of it, he knew that there was a spiritual component as well. That, that he wasn't just dying on his own. He was dying for the sin of the world. That, that as Paul says in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that, that he who had no sin was going to become sin for us. And he knew that. And what does sin do with our relationship with God? It breaks relationship with God. And he knew what was coming physically was going to be terrible, but far worse. 
He who had only experienced unbroken, perfect relationship with God as Heavenly Father would have that relationship broken, even for some moments, by sin, as he took the sin of the world onto himself. He, this is what he knows is coming. In the same way as, as God revealed to Habakkuk, Babylon's coming for you, he knew this disaster was going to come. And for Jesus, it's ultimate suffering in every way. And it says in the Gospel of Mark that he fell on the ground and he prayed if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. He, said, he says, Father, all things are possible with you. Remove this cup from me. And like Habakkuk, he has a question for God. He says, God, Heavenly Father, Abba Father, he says, is there any other way to accomplish your purposes, your plan, than what's about to happen to me? Is there any other way? It's Jesus at His most human. He's filled with emotion. He's filled with dread for what's going to happen. He has a very real opinion on this. And His opinion is, if there's another way, I would really like to take that other way. I don't want to do this. Yet, it says, not what I will, but what you will. And that to me, is in my opinion, the most powerful expression of faith in all the Scripture of all time for all humanity. It's trusting in God with the ultimate stakes. No one has, has had more skin in the game than Jesus. No one had more to lose than Jesus. And so no one entrusted themselves more to God than Jesus. Knowing full well what is before Him, asking if there's any other way, but still saying, but Father, not my will, but Yours be done. That is what it means to live by faith. Jesus is our ultimate example of faith. But He's not just an example. He's more than an example. He's also the, the object of our faith. Hebrews, again, in, in chapter 12, talks about Jesus and it says that Jesus was able to endure the cross for the joy that was set before Him. What was that joy? I believe that joy had to do with, with the promise that His dying was accomplishing more than just His death. He, he was dying so that others wouldn't have to. He was suffering so that others wouldn't have to suffer in that way. He, his death was dealing with the sin of the world. He was trusting that His joy was that His death would bring many other people into right relationship with God. And because of that, it says... Jesus followed the will of the Father. He endured the cross. He died for all of our unfaithfulness. All the ways that we failed to trust God. All the ways we failed to be faithful to God. And so our response is meant to be, in the words of, of Hebrews chapter 12, we are to fix our eyes on Him. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus both shows us what faith looks like as well as at the same time makes faith possible for us. And this 
is what Habakkuk is ultimately pointing to when he says, the righteous will live by faith. Those who are made right with God, those who are righteous, those who are in right relationship with Him, will come to be in right relationship with Him through faith in what Jesus has done for us. We don't come to right relationship with God by being perfectly faithful. We enjoy right relationship with God by His grace through trusting in Jesus' faithfulness. In the fact that He was the only true and perfect faithful follower of God. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, it's by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, of anything that you can do so that no one can boast about it. And when it says gift of God, I believe that it's referring to in this verse everything that preceded it. God's grace is a gift. His salvation is a gift. And faith to believe it is a gift that He enables in us. It's not about having vast quantities of faith in order to to grow in faithfulness. Jesus speaks to this metaphorically in one of His parables when He says, says even if you have the, the, the faith the size of a mustard seed, this tiny, tiny little thing, if you haven't seen one of those, He says even if you have that much faith, you can, you can move a mountain. Because it's not about the quantity of faith that you have, it's about the object of your faith. So we grow in faith not by working hard at a bunch of stuff. We grow in faith by learning more and meditating more and dwelling more closely with and looking more at who God is. And the clearest revelation of who God is is in the face of Jesus Christ. And so in light of all that, I want to invite you to faith today. I want to invite you to the prayer of Habakkuk that says, says, even if I lose everything, even if I lose everything that seems to bring security in my life, I will rejoice in God, my strength and salvation. I want to invite you to the prayer of Jesus. When, when no matter what you're facing, we can pray with Jesus because nothing we face will ever be as hard as what Jesus faced. And we can pray with Him, not my will, but yours be done. And that's really the kicker, isn't it? That's what's so hard about faith. Because faith is submission. Such a dirty word, isn't it? Filthy, filthy, dirty. Because in order to believe His plan over ours, it's, it's well, it's doing away with ours to some level. It's, it's at least holding our plans and aspirations with open hands while we cling to His. It's releasing our own desires to be God ourself. It's releasing our own claim to have to have all the answers. But what would it be if we had all the answers? Who would we be if we truly could see all the things? Well, we would be God. And that's really the essence of the problem. That's what got us into sin in the first place. It's at the heart of the first sin, at the beginning of the Bible, and it runs through all sin afterwards. It's our desire to not be creatures, but be Creator ourselves. And so at the heart of faith is a, is a struggle and a wrestling match with who's going to be God. And to have faith to trust that He is good and to say, not my will but yours is really the same thing as what Josh invites us to say all the time. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. 
It's letting our things go and following His wherever it's going to lead. It's entrusting our security. It's entrusting our finances. It's entrusting our relationships. It's entrusting our reputation. What people will say about us. To Him. And releasing control to some extent of of our desires for all those things. These last years, as I've said earlier, have been full of questions for me. and, And what I want you to see is for me for Habakkuk, for Jesus, and for you. That every question you ask of God is an invitation to know Him more deeply. It's an invitation to trust Him more deeply. That's why our questions are important. We can't stuff them and hide them away. We need to embrace them because when we stick with those questions, He draws us into relationship. The closest I got really in my life, to the Garden of Gethsemane was about a year and a half ago. Redeemer was a mess. Long-running conflicts and dysfunctions all came to a head. And in the midst of that, in the middle of what was kind of a fight going on behind the scenes, I became deeply convicted that I wasn't supposed to keep fighting. And that what God had for me, where God was leading me, was to surrender instead. He convicted me that the church belongs to Him, capital C, and local church as well, Redeemer Church in particular, that the church is His. It doesn't belong to me. It's not mine. That He loves it more than me. He cares for it more than me. He sustains it in a way that I never could. And he convicted me that, that I was supposed to release it. And I agonized over that. I don't think I've ever agonized over anything like that in my whole life. I wept. I was on my knees. And, and it was brutal in a similar way to what I've talked about with Habakkuk and Jesus because I knew that if I did it, it was going to hurt people. I knew that if I did it, that people wouldn't understand, that it would totally mess with my reputation, which already wasn't awesome. I had no idea how I'd provide for myself. I'd been a pastor for 20 years at that point, and you know, it's just a weird thing to put on a resume for some other non-pastor job, even though that's kind of what I wanted to do at the time, just kind of get out of all this stuff. I had no idea where it was going but it, 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 it was just confirmed. It was confirmed by my wife. It was confirmed by all these other people close to me. Literally, I had this conviction one night and started calling people the next day. This is what I think. And people were like, I, I got woke up at 4 a.m. with a dream from God that this is what you're supposed to do. And it was, it was just super clear. And so I did. And I, I stood on the last night before I did this, right back there, just inside that door. The room was empty, and it was dark. And I said... God, this belongs to you. And I walked out. And I had no idea what was going to happen. I had no idea where it was going to go. I had no idea when I'd be back or under what conditions. But what followed was beyond anything I could have imagined. I, it, was all, it was all off the rails after that point. And, and, and everything that happened uh, was something I never would have thought of. I 
God worked in dramatic ways. He, he restored me back into Redeemer, but Redeemer was a, a total, even more of a mess at that point. And, and we uh, ended up coming together with Door of Hope. He set me on a whole new trajectory with a new church family in some ways. Doing the same thing that I've been doing in some ways. Standing in the same spot where I was standing, but it's also different at the same time. And I'm so thankful for how He's worked. And I, I don't know how all those things would have happened if I'd gone a different way. I, God, God's sovereign. He does things. And I'm not saying faith is always that dramatic for everyone. And I'm definitely not saying just trust in Him and in a year and a half tops, everything's going to be sweet. <laughs> it happened to work out that way for me. And, you know, I, I, things are still hard. I mean, I, I read you all the things earlier. I mean, I, I'm still married. I still have teenage daughters. It's still, the church still, the church still has people, which is always a mess, right? You know? Uh, but what I am saying is he's faithful. He's faithful. God's promise is always the same for His people and it is restoration and blessing and love and joy and peace. And He hasn't promised that perfectly in this life. He has promised it in the life to come. That's when things are, as I said earlier, going to click. That's when it's going to all be downhill and you're really going to lock in the trajectory. Probably not going to happen here. We get a taste of those things in this life. But it's always mixed with trouble and hard things, right? until we see Him face to face. And we see fully. And we know fully. So in light of all that, I just want to ask you, where is He inviting you to trust Him today? Even in the midst of your questions, where is He drawing you closer? What would it look like if you took all the questions that you've mashed down and corked off if you kind of like popped that thing and let them out? Both to God first and to some other people who you trust in your life. What would happen? What would change? And the first time you do that, the first time you believe that God is good by faith, particularly in what He's done for you through Jesus, that's called becoming a Christian. And then every time after that, that's just called living, in Paul's words, from faith to faith. From one faith to the next faith. From one opportunity to trust Him, to another. And, and, and the bread and butter of faith is just more of the ordinary day-by-day day loving others instead of just loving yourself. Putting others before yourself. Trusting that God is good. That you're not going to get messed over in the process. Until the great day when faith disappears and we see our Savior personally. See Jesus Christ face to face. And that will be a good day. That will be the best day. Until then, I want to invite you to the prayer of Jesus. Not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray.